Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Uh, every time someone calls me, I have this thought in the back of my head. Why are they calling me? This doesn't make sense. They should. Uh, surely there's like a czar of this a person in charge of it who will solve the problem. And in a lot of cases, there just there just isn't. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in. I am your host, Danny Fortson. West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And this week, we have a good one for you. Very good one. Today, we have none other than Eric Reese, who many of you will know as the author of The Lean Startup, as well as the founder of the soon-to-be-launched Long-Term Stock Exchange. We are not talking about either of those things, though. Allow me to explain. So over the last few weeks, as COVID has raged across the world, One of the many shocking aspects of this crisis has been the PPE shortage, just a complete lack of masks and gowns for frontline workers, for essential workers, for everybody. And I'd started hearing that a lot of people out here in Silicon Valley were really diving in to help creating organizations, um, nonprofits, getting groups together to, in some small way, help try to alleviate the problem or kind of shorten it, at least shorten this window of crisis. And there are a bunch of organizations that have been started up to address the shortage. So there's One Billion Masks. That was founded by Sam Altman, who's pulling together orders from gig economy companies in hopes of securing a very big supply or big enough supply for employees and contractors of those companies. There's Operation Mask, which is started by a bunch of venture capitalists. There's uh, Matt Rogers, the founder of Nest, you know, the smart thermostat. He's working on this through his own fund, Insight. And then there is the PPE Coalition, which Reese has started with Jeff Lawson of Twilio and venture investor Joe Wilson. And the obvious question is what the hell do any of these guys know about face masks and surgical gowns? And we'll get to that. Now, this is not a case of, you know, Silicon Valley riding over the horizon to save us all. For me, what was really interesting was that what they are up to and what they have found provides a window into just the all-out scramble behind the scenes of governments and companies around the world to secure this most basic of protection for frontline essential workers and eventually the rest of us and doing so in mass quantities. So it gives a real sense of how big the problem is, why there is a problem and and the hopeful kind of way out, how likely and how soon that is likely to happen. So with that, I will now hand you over to Eric Reese. Enjoy. First of all, thanks for taking the time. Sounds like you're you're a busy man these days. It's been a very intense, very intense couple of weeks. Can we just talk about how you decided or were drawn into this, hey, let's get into the world of PPE? Yeah, that was um, <laughs> that was not my plan by any means. You know, I, I have a full-time job and I got young kids. I was, I was already working on an education relief effort 
when I got this call from a friend who had been called by some folks who were working with the federal government on this issue. This was in the early days of the crisis. He asked oh, this is your me, friend at uh, Twilio, the founder yeah, of Twilio. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He asked me if I would, you know, lend a hand. At the time, you know, we were looking at a very limited piece of the puzzle, just just this website that needed to get built. And it was just, that was like, to me, like falling down the rabbit hole. So I, I just started to make calls to learn more about the problem and what needed to be done. At the time, I was conceiving it just as what would I need to do in order to get this website built quickly because it's such an urgent problem. Yeah. You know, as I came to understand the full scale of the tragedy and the need for dramatic action, I just, you know, I couldn't help but want to be helpful and try to, I'm not even sure how to characterize it, but but it's kind of a mix of diplomacy between groups and companies, a mix of just trying to encourage people to work together, and then a mix of kind of bringing some technology and lean startup thinking into that into that world. I didn't even get as far as trying to build the website because one of the very first things that I learned was that there were already multiple competing groups building the website that I was thinking about building. So one of the and problems- what was the website you were thinking about building? In the early days of the crisis, it seemed like what was needed was a website that could match suppliers of PPE with hospitals that needed it. Very logical. If hospitals have a shortage, you know there must be PPE somewhere else, and we just need to do some supply and demand matching, as if the traditional supply chain had kind of broken down or, or didn't exist. And, and if you think about the mental model of a disaster, that's often what it, the problem in like a natural disaster kind of situation where the physical warehouses of the distributors have been destroyed or the place is inaccessible by air or land. And so we have to create an alternate structure. So a lot of people who go through the process of learning about this problem have suggested solutions that are very common sense and very logical and just happen to have the wrong mental model for this particular crisis because it's such a, a, a strange, such a strange beast. So what is the problem? Is it a problem of production? Or is it a problem of distribution? Where are the kinks? And what did you find when you start di- started digging in? I think there's almost nobody in a Western country who hasn't gotten one of these emails or a Facebook message from a friend or colleague or family member who works in a frontline medical job. They're just incredibly heartbreaking. My, my parents are doctors. So of course, I knew about this firsthand from them. But even just my casual acquaintances, people I know that had gone to medical school, that the doctors that I see, I mean, people were emailing me saying, hey, this is an intolerable situation. We have the, the very people we rely on to treat patients and to save all of us who don't have the basic equipment that they need to stay safe. You know, what is the problem? The problem is a shameful and it's intolerable mistreatment of um, you know the people who are most valuable in this crisis. So why? It's a complicated answer, actually. The, the People who want a simple villain or a simple solution, it's actually kind of challenging to answer. And the reason is who actually makes this stuff and how is it distributed and how is it purchased is a multi-step supply chain. So just I'll give you the very brief version of it, and then we can start to talk about the breakdown. Hospitals don't buy this stuff directly. They contract the purchasing to GPOs, you are a set of companies that, that do per- hospital equipment purchasing. So they have an open purchase order with somebody who places an order with a distributor. So a hospital has a GPO, it's called general purchaser, who places orders with a distributor. The distributor runs warehouses all around the country, and most hospitals are serviced multiple times a day by at least one distributor. 
if the distributor has product, they give it to you when you need it. It's a real just-in-time delivery system and it, it works right. pretty well. The distributor buys the equipment from a manufacturer like 3M for masks. And they say, okay, great. Well, why don't we just have them give them more masks? But hold on, 3M and the other manufacturers run a global supply chain themselves. The most, Some of the factories are here in the US, but many of the factories are overseas. So why don't we have them just ramp up production? Well, the actual supply network, like especially where a lot of this is taking place in China, there's an intermediary in between most purchasers and most factories. So now we're talking about individual factories that are cranking out this material. There's a network of, I don't even know what the right term is for this. We think of them as like purchasing agents. And especially when we're talking about China, it's it's never clear like who's a state actor and who's a private actor, as you well know. So there's a very complicated system of doing pro purchasing and procurement in countries like China. So now that whole system, when I, when I first got involved this first day, I talked to a retired CEO from the medical supply chain mm -hmm. sector. And I just said, listen, educate me. What is going on? He said, this is very simple. People have this mental model, which is that America's warehouses are empty. There's no masks in America. And so therefore we have to go find masks. He's like, that's not true. The problem is demand for PPE is 20X, 20X normal peak seasonal flu level. That's a problem. And the other problem is that shipments from China are one fifth what they used to be. Because guess what? It's a global crisis and every country is now in competition for these supplies. And many of the host countries where the production is happening also need the supplies domestically. And it's a very complicated, very complicated situation. So at root, this is a supply and demand mismatch. It's not actually a shortage as if the things don't exist. It's just we're, we need to produce more per day than we're currently able to produce. So if it was true, like if you, if you happen to have an extra three or four billion N95 masks sitting around, if you could just get them into the distributor warehouses, the problem would be instantaneously solved yeah. because the hospitals would get it the very next day and the money would flow and everything would be fine. The problem is that um, we're not producing enough of this. And of course, masks are only one of the SKUs that matter. There's there's several that are in, in severely tight demand. And I haven't even gotten into the raw material competition. So then even if you had extra factories in a certain place, there's still competition for the underlying raw materials. So it's a very complicated supply chain. And in order to understand the specifics of why there is these, why there are these shortages and what needs to be done, you're looking at multiple overlapping problems and then multiple incompatible theories of change of the different people who are trying to solve the problem. So what are you doing? So, yeah. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it, but like what can you kind of tech entrepreneur guy do in a very complicated global supply chain for medical supplies? I mean, my assumption going into this is that there was nothing for me to do. I'm just a civilian here. This is not my area. Yeah. I'm not an expert. And it's actually a complete coincidence. It just so happens that the kinds of people who are working on this problem, uh, there are three buckets of people who happen to have a pre-existing relationship with me. So I, I'm able to pass in all these different organizations that aren't normally talking to each other. So obviously there's a lot of startups working on this and startup people know me through Lean Startup. But of the major corporations that are working on this, people like Cardinal Health, Anthem, Walmart, 
I've either worked with them as a lean startup consultant, or there's actually a whole wave of GE executives who left GE when they had that big collapse that know me for my work uh, in the corporate sector. And so I happen to have folks in the problem who talk to. And then there's also a third wave of folks who were serving in government, either currently serving in government or used to, uh, who worked on, for example, digital procurement reform for what's called the United States Digital Service in the Obama administration, who um, have been presidential innovation fellows, entrepreneurs in residence in governments, work for Code for America. So there's like there's that whole crew of folks who who also know me well, again, through my through my prior work. And so it was actually relatively easy for me to get people on the phone, especially that first day, second day, who were working on the problem. And I would constantly be asking the question, have you talked to so-and-so other person who's working on this problem? And have you shared data with them? And the answer was invariably no. And sometimes it's because they don't know each other, but in a lot of cases it's because there's, there's actual, there's factional lines here. There's people who think what the others are doing is the wrong solution or is actually counter, you know, counterproductive. So I wound up playing this role of kind of talking to everybody who was involved. And I had this epiphany in the middle of it that what was needed was not yet another website and yet another matching algorithm. What was needed was a coalition of all the different people working on this so that we could start sharing data, best practices and information. Um, we could be cross-promoting and, and not working at cross-purposes. And then we could then take that joint effort and use that to educate the public not just about the problem, which is quite severe, but the fact that the private sector and partnerships between the public and private sector are stepping up to solve the problem. And therefore, if people are feeling angst, anger, anxiety, fear about this problem, here are productive ways to channel that energy versus just being angry or building yet another redundant group. And, and there's like new right. groups being launched practically every day in this area because there hasn't been this public education that needs to happen. And that coalition is the PPE coalition. Yes, yes. People can check it out at ppecoalition.com. Yeah. And it sounds like effectively what you're doing is you're kind of like an air traffic controller. Yeah, we actually, we did something very old fashioned and raised a lot of eyebrows in Silicon Valley, but we started a hotline. It was actually a hotline. A hotline, like in the old days. A 1 800 number. There's literally a 1 800 number. Go to ppecoalition.com. I I should have memorized the number. I don't know what I've had. You go to the website and it says call this number. And we have a team of very dedicated volunteers who will get your information and just tell you which group to plug into and help you do that. And so, is the practically speaking, is what you're trying to do then is to kind of group. Say, if I'm Walmart or I'm, I'm Amazon or I'm Instacart and all my workers need masks do you kind of try to get all of them together and be like we're going to make one mega order so that we can kind of secure a whatever a contract from a big supplier in china and get those to our people quickly is that kind of what's happening yes although it's actually like i feel like it's so meta there are multiple competing groups trying to do that exact thing so we try to get those groups to talk to each other so that when a new supplier comes online or a new distributor comes online like a major American retailer called us this week and said, we, we have the logistics capability to import large amounts of this stuff to this country, um, where, where, but we don't know where to send it. And we're like, what do you mm. mean you don't know where to send it? First of all, just send it to any hospital. Every hospital needs it. But like, these are very orderly companies. They don't just randomly send stuff. They're like, well, we need, we need data and we need spreadsheets and we need to understand the economics. And so we, we then said, great, tell us the information you need to get going. We then polled a bunch of the grassroots groups that have that information, got back to the distributor, 
now they're up and running. We also, at the same time, happened to be talking to a major American manufacturer who said, well, we saw this crisis coming. We've been scaling up our factory production since January so that we could provide this material to our own employees ourselves so that we would be insulated. They've really been taking this view of protecting the company Mm. and its supply chain from the disruption they knew was coming. And it didn't occur to them until recently, it seemed like, that they should take that same capability and offer it to others. But if you think about it from each organization's point of view, that's not their normal business. So it does feel a little strange. I I don't blame them that they took them a while to do this and they're not sure how to do it. They said, well, we need, they're like, we can produce the stuff, but we would need someone to distribute it for us. We don't want to be in the distribution business. And we said, great. I'm, I'm literally just talking to a distributor right now. Can I please make the connection? And that's what we do. So we we bring people right. together, convene them, get them to share data and work together. And we cause partnerships to happen that I, don't, I can't believe that I'm in the routing of these things. It seems like they should have happened on their own. But practically speaking, they haven't been happening. And so um, we're able to help make that happen. And how much interface do you have with the federal government on this or any at all? Um, very little. I remain ever hopeful that we will have more uh, when they are ready. My very original premise for this before it was now it has a lot of like big time industry groups in it. But at the beginning, it was much more grassroots. And I felt like I was like, oh, well, when the federal government is ready to act, we need to create an an interface because we can't Mm. have the Pentagon calling 20 grassroots groups. Just we're going to have to get some kind of interface for them to make it easier for them to manage this ecosystem. And and I actually failed. Like we we were not able to create that interface with the federal government. And in fact, many of the government agencies that have been active here are now calling many many groups. And it's it's a very it's a very messy process. But I I still have a lot of hope that um, that there will be an opportunity to consolidate and kind of get a more organized response at the at the national level and then eventually at the international level. Because right now a lot of this is being framed in nationalistic terms about. Yeah. You know, each country defending its supply, building up its supply, getting the stuff that they need. But this is a truly global crisis. And so we're going to need international coordination because I, I can only imagine how horrific the situation must be, for example, in developing nations. Yeah, of course. I want to talk about a couple of the bottlenecks because I was talking to somebody yesterday, and I don't know if you have any insight on this, but I was told that one of the key problems is just the gowns, like the, I think it's called melt-blown fabric. Yes, correct. Um, or something like that. But yeah, but it's kind of like it's impregnated with some with plastic basically and acts as a very good filter. So that's one problem. And I was told another one is the machines to make that. Is that actually a problem? Because it sounds I'm, I was told that it's like one company in Germany or something that makes these things. That is correct. The answer, the answer to your question is actually different skew by skew. This is the other really interesting thing about it is that PPE is not actually a, a category. It's just a general term for a right. lot of different SKUs that are manufactured with very different processes. So some things are, are able to be made through injection molded plastic. Some things can be 3D printed. Some things require melt blown and highly specialized equipment. Some things can be sewn by hand and some things cannot. So like with a, with a surgical gown, you really want melt blown and you want heat sealed fabrics. That gives you the best seal. So a, a hand stitched gown is not as good, but you know, hand stitched face masks are actually useful in a lot of situations. So, you know, say face shields, different from face masks, different from right. gowns, different from gloves. So take that example. There are many, there are many modes of manufacturing production that can make these items if you have the right raw materials. 
And in fact, there's been a, a, a strain of manufacturing thinking going back decades now that one of the best ways to run a factory or a production process is to make it resilient so that it can make multiple kinds of products and it's easy to switch over. This is called the changeover rate of the machines themselves. Mm -hmm. So one of the investments that we could be making right now, I mean, we should have been making all along, but we could be making right now is to upskill the manufacturing capabilities of our country and every advanced country to take advantage of these techniques so that we can make the things that you're talking about. So for example, one of the partners we have in the coalition has these, they call them cookbooks. They're like a how-to process for making these different items that they developed because their job was to verify that the materials were made correctly. Right. You take delivery of gowns or masks, you have to make sure that they were done right. And so you need to audit the manufacturer. So they're not a manufacturer themselves, but they have these cookbooks. One of the things they have developed for the cookbooks is for every material, for every skew, for every material in that skew, they have developed all acceptable alternatives. And if you go item by item, there are specific items with specific alternatives that can be made. So the traditional way of corporations is to treat that as proprietary information. These cookbooks are hidden behind trade secret and IP protections. We've been trying to get them open sourced. Once we get them open sourced, what we'll be able to do is then the other kind of, I hate to call this good news, but fact of the situation is because we're entering into a depression level economic adjustment here. Most of America's factories are idle right now. I got a phone call from a, a factory that makes textiles for hotels. Because how many hotels are buying new drapes and sheets right now? So their, their workers are 100% furloughed and they're just, the factory is sitting there idle. So they could be making this stuff if they knew what to make and where to send it. And the hotline, we've been fielding call after call after call from Phoenix, El Paso, Wisconsin, Michigan, you know, any, any place where Americans still manufacture things saying, can you please help us figure out what to make and where to send it? And so if we can get the cookbooks open sourced, then we can have these factories get to work on the alternative materials. So a lot of this is about not just manufacturing the end goods, but there's intermediate manufacturing steps. So the thing you're talking about in Germany is the, if you want to mass produce Meltblown itself. There's a specialized equipment for that. But some of these alternative materials can be uh, processed and manufactured with existing equipment and maybe not at the most efficient and economic way, but that's not really the issue right now. Right now, speed is much more important than cost because we should be willing to pay almost any cost to support our frontline medical personnel. But then there's another issue. And I'll just, this is, this one is really heartbreaking. There's a factory in Texas, an authorized 3M manufacturer of N95 masks. And a, an intrepid reporter, I think from the local paper, walked by the factory a couple weeks ago and noticed that they were not running multiple shifts in the factory. Imagine this. This is a crisis level of N95 shortage. How could this factory not be running 24-7? They called the company for comment. And the company said, well, glad you asked. We're not doing it. We're not scaling up production because after H1N1, we did scale up production. We bought lots of new equipment. We hired tons of new people. We were able to handle the extra demand for masks. And the second the crisis ended, every one of our buyers switched back to Chinese suppliers to save 10 cents a mask. And we almost bankrupted the company. And that's why I started answering your question with the whole supply chains. Because whose fault is that? Well, did the hospitals decide that? Did the GPOs decide that? Did the system decided it? And they said, unless somebody is willing to help us staff up 
and will give us long-term guaranteed contracts to buy the things at the right price, we're not scaling up. Now, the good news of that story is that the story came to the attention of Governor Abbott in Texas, who uh, sent in the National Guard to provide extra manpower to run the extra shifts in the plant. And now they're, they're running at full capacity. But multi, but like, luckily, a local reporter wrote that story. And luckily, Governor Abbott saw it and had the vision to do something about it. But multiply that story times a thousand, ten thousand factories where we could be making this stuff. So who's going to step up and say, you know, like what we need to we need to raise funds, we need philanthropists and the government to step in here and say, look, if you're willing to make this stuff, we will guarantee we'll give you guaranteed purchase contracts at a higher price to make sure you don't go bankrupt or we'll finance the transition. We'll pay for the reskilling. We'll pay for the new equipment. I mean, this company in Germany that makes the raw material, like I bet you they're not making those machines as fast as they possibly could. So what if we gave them guaranteed contracts to produce more of that stuff? In mass, there's specialized equipment for mass producing mass that is primarily in China and Taiwan. And although getting Taiwan, getting China to send us that equipment probably challenging. I don't think it'd be so hard to get Taiwanese companies to do it. And yet when I talk to manufacturing companies and say, who are you talking to in Taiwan to try to buy that equipment? A lot of them that they're like, well, we're, you know, we're waiting for the state department to figure that out. Or we're, we're, we're assuming that someone else will have figured it out. There's kind of this assumption all up and down this problem that somebody else is already working on that. And so the people are kind of waiting to be told who figured it out instead of actually doing it themselves. It strikes me that that's kind of the bizarre part of the bizarre kind of situation in which you find yourself is as I get older, I see it happen more often is that you think there's an adult in the room and then you realize there isn't. The government is like, okay, well, obviously this is a crisis. The government will get its act together, make a massive order or massively ramp up production or do whatever it needs to do, move mountains to make something happen. But is it fair to say that you kind of, basically you kind of came in like, well, this is, we'll do this for a little bit until the cavalry comes. It's funny because one of my favorite sayings in startups is that the cavalry is not coming. And I, <laughs> I say it all the time. Stephen Ben will, 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 says all the time because for the for when you're a startup company, like there isn't some higher power who will intervene on your behalf. When we were a five person company, we would sometimes look around the table and, and people would be talking about, you know, we need to solve a problem. We need to solve some problem. And it's like, well, who's going to solve it? The mythical they there's no they, it's just the five of us. That's it. There's nobody, there's no help on the horizon. And then even when the company grows, you know, uh, at, at 30 people, you still kind of, you're, now we're on Zoom, looking around the Zoom call, well, who's going to solve the problem? Like there's nobody else. Look around, this is it. And so I'm used to that because I'm in a startup, but it was inconceivable to me that that could be true in, in at the national level, at, at the governmental level, even in some states, you know, we're still waiting for state there's some cities that aren't even at shelter in place, even as we're talking right now. So that was a hard, a hard lesson to internalize. And even I fall for it. Like I feel like Lucy with the football. I catch myself constantly expecting somebody will solve the problem. And I mentioned these big companies that are calling me. Not, it's not even just governments. I, every time someone calls me, I have this thought in the back of my head, why are they calling me? This doesn't make sense. They should, surely there's like a czar of this, a person in charge of it who will solve the problem. And in a lot of cases, there just, there just isn't. Even while at the same time, we have a lot of people who are eager to take credit for things. So there's a lot of people building, you know, making announcements and there's a lot of like frenetic activity. And if you read the coverage of the problem, you'd think the problem was solved 20 times over from all the press releases that have gone out. But if you actually go talk to the people who are on the ground in the factories, you know, one of these American companies 
one of the Americans I really admire, their head of COVID response lives in Wuhan and has lived there for four years. They didn't pick some random American executive who knows nothing. They picked someone who was on the ground where the outbreak started, who has like been living with this the longest, who really, really understands the problem and uh, and therefore the solution. And so I was talking to that person and, and they were saying they've been waiting. They can't get anyone on the phone to help them. You know, they're just, they're stuck. They know what needs to be done. They're, they're doing what they can for their company, but they had trouble getting partners with other companies. They're watching the news just like the rest of us. And they keep hearing about this alliance, that company, they're doing all this stuff. And meanwhile, they can't get the stuff distributed. And so there's a lot of that going on where the people whose job it is to actually do the work are not getting the support that they need. It's not just me. I mean, I hesitate to get any credit here. I don't think my work here is remotely important compared to the scale of the problem. But I think a lot of us need to just kind of roll up our sleeves and say, hey, how can we help? How can we be of service? Do you have any sense, having been at this now for whatever, five weeks or whatever, how long, however long it's been, the scale just in terms of like numbers so people can understand, you know, what is required and what is being produced, kind of that delta, what's the difference there? And also, if there is, do you see any inkling of something that like what BYD, BYD did in China, where it was like, okay, we make cars or car batteries or whatever, we're going to stop, remake our entire factory in a week, and now we're churning out 15 million masks a day. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. And, and I, I mean, I don't mean to, to paint a bleak picture. Like I mentioned before that gowns is the hot thing at the moment. And that's because masks, like mask production has really ramped up and, and we do seem to be moving in the right direction there. Part of that was the, the geopolitics of the situation too. We, there was a national negotiation with China that needed to happen that didn't happen for a long time, but it seems like that has smoothed away. That allows more, more material to be moved from China. And a lot of factories are being retooled to produce these items. Um, and, and even in the US, uh, I know a lot of examples now of people who are, are cranking out face shields, people who are have figured out how to, uh, there's a company that, that there's an initiative called Masks On that is adapting uh, snorkel masks for use as face shields. And snorkels. Snorkel masks, yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, this is this is the, the downside of capitalism, late stage capitalism we're living in is the kind of shortages that we're seeing. The upside of it is the incredible ingenuity and innovation of ordinary people who have stepped into the breach here um, to do to do good work. And the scale of it is just hard to, to comprehend. Like 15 million masks a day is really good, except that we need billions. We're just really, really short the necessary stockpile. We'll absolutely get there. I mean, I, I, now that, that global attention is, has been turned to this, like we will get there. And the problem with a pandemic is eventually is not good enough. So every day sooner, you know, it's like the, you look at the shelter in place orders, the social distancing, every day sooner people acted. You know, the difference even between when California and New York acted has had exponential changes in differences. And, and in this country, I shudder to think what's going to be happening in our rural areas in a short time uh, because of, of what's happened. This is a matter of weeks where if we can get something, get a factory online a day sooner or a week sooner, it makes a huge difference. And then we also have this unprecedented opportunity. I hate to be optimistic and positive about this because everyone's in such a dark place, but I really believe we have this once in a generation opportunity to invest in the recovery by reorganizing the factories and the means of production. So upskilling, insourcing, We've been talking about that stuff for, for ages, but the advent of 3D printing, the ability to uh, adopt advanced manufacturing techniques, 
there's a lot that we could be doing. And so the philanthropists and states that are currently in the process of outbidding each other on the gray market for these items, if we could divert just 1% of the money that is going into that to making the, these long-term investments, this is like one of the strange situations where long-term investments pay off right away. So right. I think we should be making as many of those investments as we can. I feel a book like the lean manufacturer or something. Well, you know, that's that's where it came from. I, I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's a full circle moment for me because I, I learned lean by reading books about manufacturing. I come from software. I don't, what do I know about manufacturing? But yeah, thankfully it's because of the connection to lean manufacturing, to, to lean startup that I, I know anything about this. So yeah, so I'm actually very grateful to have had that background. This is not your day job. You're also about to launch or kind of go live with your with uh, the long-term stock exchange, yes? Very interesting time to be uh, launching. I was a new going to say it's not um, it's not perhaps the most opportune time to be launching a stock market. Or is it? You know, what's interesting is the number of customers who have called me since the crisis started and say this proves the need for long-term thinking, or boy, we sure wish this had already existed, or like some somehow people are are making that connection that many of the problems that we're dealing with, like one of the root cause problems is, is this short-term focus. And, I, and it's not just in public companies. Of course, that's our, our focus now. But like I was, I was interviewing a research scientist today who said, we were talking about vaccine production, drug, you know, the antiviral research and, and the production of pharmaceuticals. And they were just, they went on this extended, unprompted you know, rant about our inability, our unwillingness to invest in infectious disease as a category, our unwillingness to do to just invade, invest in basic research, and the gutting of our R and D labs, both corporate R and D labs for which public companies and the markets bear some responsibility, but also government labs. Just our ability to think that that stuff could pay off in the good times has become so limited, and it's it's a disease. And then, just lastly, I forgot to ask: just in terms of the progress you guys have made, have you had any kind of wins or orders put in and successfully filled in terms of the PPE coalition and what you guys have been working on? Oh, many. Yeah. Uh, we, again, we don't place the orders directly, but we've played matchmaker between buyers and sellers. So yes, we've each of the groups that we work with has a spreadsheet where they track supply and demand and we, we look at that data. And so, you know, just the groups that we touch have placed hundreds of millions of item orders. And some of that is stuff that they've successfully imported. Like if you, you know, if you look at Flexport, the logistics company, great company, um, private company in the, in the Valley. They have a 60 person team doing nothing but importation logistics for PPE. They just completely leapt into air freight, air cargo, everything that needed to be done for that. And so they've been the logistics provider behind a lot of, like if you see philanthropists on TV and on social media with a cargo container of masks they brought to the hospital that they are philanthropic donors of, it's very likely that Flexport was the one that actually did the shipping logistics. If you've followed the story of, you know, government seizing those shipments and the issues they've had in customs and the regulatory barrier, there's been a lot of, it's not been an easy thing to, to do. And they've been real, um, one of the unsung heroes of this crisis. So yes, there's been, again, it's hard to, it's hard to really simultaneously celebrate the procurement of millions of items and still keep that awareness that what is needed is billions. These are stopgap measures until we can really get production uh, right-sized again. And that is all the time we have. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I want to thank Eric for taking the time. Obviously, he's got a few things going on, what with launching a stock exchange and doing this PPE thing. I hope you all are staying safe and sane, and 
hopefully we'll be kind of starting toward a some return of semblance of normalcy in the not too distant future. Until then, stay indoors and stay safe. And we'll be writing about this and a whole bunch of other stuff in the Sunday Times this weekend. Please buy a paper or better yet, subscribe online. You don't even have to leave your house. You don't even have to leave your desk because every little every subscription helps us keep doing this type of stuff. So please support us. We need it. Anyhow, until next week, take it easy. Take care. Bye-bye.